Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. All right, welcome to the Oil and Gas Elevate podcast. Eric, here we are. Starting us off, we're going to talk to Joseph Tripke, who got us invited, got us this entire conference going. We are, we're here with him today to talk to him a little bit about what he's doing, and we're just excited to be here, my friend. I'm excited to be with you, and thank you guys for making the trip in. Yeah. Let me just say, just you know, from being stuck in the house or not being engaged with people and, and just doing all that over the last year and a half, it's been great to, to be here, to be in Frisco, to be at y'all's conference. And Joseph, Joseph will talk about numbers here in a minute, but there's, there's big crowds here. There's a lot of people that are engaged. They're excited to be here. Pure companies talking and engaging and customers and all of that. So it's exciting. So congratulations to you and Pete on pulling this off. And I know you guys are excited about it. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. I think if enthusiasm was a metric we could chart, we'd probably have to increase the axis because we've blown the top <laughs> off, right? I think people were just so ready to get back out there. We're the first produced water conference back in 18 months. So people in the sector really haven't had an opportunity to have that face-to-face networking. Everyone's been in the Zoom meeting, you know, fog. So a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of energy, for sure. I mean, let's talk numbers yeah. uh, since I mentioned it. I mean, registrants, attendees, give us some of the scale of what's going on here because it's, it's impressive just putting eyes on it. Sure. Yeah. So we had about 350 registered attendees. We actually had to increase the space. The hotel here was very accommodating on that front. About 60 speakers, about 45 sponsors. So certainly a very large event, I think, by any standard for this period in time. So yeah. Impressive. Very impressed. And it, and it seems like no lack of not just energy for enthusiasm for being here, but just the content, what's going on in this space. I mean, it's been, I have not used, uh, I, I've been trying very hard not to use all the, all the metaphors or just cliches about that, but I feel like I have been educated highly. I won't use the uh, fire hydrant metaphor, but it, it has really been, it's really been an amazing morning and the amount of stuff that's out there for the industry, the, the number of issues, but also the, the things that are coming to solve those problems. It seems truly an exciting and an amazing time for water right now in the industry. It is. You know, it's been a long time coming. I think historically, if we think about it, water was kind of a cottage industry. E&Ps ran it in-house, and it was not a commercialized space. And we started the Oilfield Water Connection conference circuit in 2019. And at that time, water midstream was sort of starting to come into its own as an actual viable commercial sector. Me and ps were divesting water assets into true midstream firms. Uh, Eric, I know telling you stuff you know is you've done a lot of these deals. But I think what was clear to me at this event is that water midstream is really coming to its own. As a, as a sector, as an industry, it's fully functional. In 2019, we were talking about the formation of the industry, and now we're talking about the sector really catching its stride. So that conversation has changed from formation to, you know, we're kind of here. To me, that's maybe the biggest change in the conversation since 2019. But we work really hard on the content, really hard on the panels, try to keep them very focused on marketplace issues and water. Uh, there's a lot of good technical resources and white paper type conferences, but our focus is on the finance side, the business side, the contracting nature of it, the commercial side of it, and the speakers are top tier. 
Yeah, I would say I've been super impressed so far with the panels. I'm, I'm not talking about my panel, but I'm talking about... It was great. <laughs> it was really good. I'm yeah, talking, no, you're my I'm boy talking about all, the other panels. It was great. But, I mean, Joseph, to your point, I go, I go back, for example, to Steve Jones, his basically, which was almost a second keynote, just talking about the valuation that we deserve. and it, But it, it did reflect that evolution, so to speak, in the water mainstream. And it, it's not just, is this viable? And it's, no, it's actually... You guys don't realize what we've accomplished and what we've become, and it and it's super valuable, and we deserve that premium. And and to to hear him have that kind of just open frank dialogue, I think was great. But and on some of the other panels, you also see, you know, the producers have shown up and they're being frank and honest about what they need, what they expect, which is super beneficial as the midstream companies try to figure out what they're going to do on a go forward basis. So I, I think I think it's been a home run on all aspects so far. Yeah, which makes sense because I mean, we, we met way back in your oilpro.com days. And so, I mean, the content it doesn't surprise me as far as that goes. And, and it's just a, it's a learning experience. And so we, we really hope on some level to encourage those. You hear the buzz in the background for next year. It's coming. Uh, you guys are doing, going to do this in 2022 as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. So just a quick background. Like I said, we started in 2019. We did two smaller events in Houston in 2019. This event is actually a postponement. Uh, we had planned this for last May of 2020. And of course, we couldn't hold it due to everything going on with the pandemic. So this event was a roll forward from 2020, and we plan to make it an annual affair. This will be our big one. We'll probably do another event, kind of a one-day update in Houston in the fall. So look for that date to be set pretty soon. But we hope to make this an annual occurrence here in Dallas. Awesome. Well, congratulations to you guys. Y'all have done an amazing job. I, I would encourage if you're in this space, a customer, wherever you are, you should participate. You should get involved and definitely be here in 2022. So again, congrats to both of you guys for getting knocking it out. Yeah. And thanks for the uh, introduction to XRI who are having come on our, in this segment and uh, hear about their amazing, what they're doing in the water space in terms of recycling and reusing of this amazing resource. So thank you. Well, thank you guys for joining us here in Frisco and we're happy to have you. You're welcome. Hey, Sean, a quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Through HPE's extensive activity and experience in the oil and gas industry, they have identified six key areas to enable your company to get ahead of the competition. Cloud-based consumption, advanced analytics, secure mobility solutions, physical and cybersecurity offerings, asset virtualization, and application modernization. So with that, do you want to find out more about one or all of those solutions? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download their white paper about these subjects. Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. We are on the road again, but this time we were so fortunate to do a a conference before. You may hear background noise, which we're kind of excited about, Eric, because we're not in a studio we're visiting the Oil Field Water Markets 2021 conference given by our friend Joseph, who we just heard from. And you just got done speaking. Tell us a little bit about where we're at and what we're doing. So we're here in Frisco, Texas. I'm excited to be here. I'm loving getting back in person. We've got 400, 500 people here. An opportunity for the industry to get back together, to talk, to engage, to work on the business and see what the future is. So it's been really great. Yeah. Good to see people and getting just an amazing morning. You were on a great panel this morning and we're really, really fortunate to have connected with Joseph and gotten to know XRI, who we're talking about today. They're a leading recycle and reuse water company. They're, they were founded in 2013 with a commitment to sustainability. They utilize technology, products, and services to help them prevent millions of barrels of raw produced water from being reinjected into the ground. And so after we take this short break for about 60 seconds to hear from HPE, we'll come back and we'll learn more about them. Looking forward to it. And let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Technology alone can't solve business problems, but an ecosystem of partners with the right expertise can. 
HP is proud to partner with business leaders and exceed their goals together. When it comes to ESG, for example, their knowledge and expertise helps oil and gas leaders not only become a force for good, but also increase their business and market value. ESG is a business driver for HP. Let them show you how it can boost investment, win business, attract talent, and future-proof your products from regulatory risk. Want to find out more about how to make your company an ESG success story? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download HPE's white paper all about it. All right, well, welcome back. So we're here with XRI. We're here with John Durant, President and Chief Sustainability Officer, as well as Chris Herrich, who's the Chief Operating Officer. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Thank, thank you for having us. us. So let's, I mean, our show's about ESG. This conference is about water. So let's, let's ask the big macro question first. When we talk oil and gas, when we talk ESG, why does water matter? Go ahead, John. Water matters in oil and gas drilling, always has been a facet of it, but with the shale revolution and horizontal drilling, the advent of that, that's when water volumes started becoming much more considerable. And that's when the feasibility of moving water via trucks also started to not make much sense. And starting from our, our beginnings in 2013, of which Chris was here at the beginning, and he can, he can expound on this, but really... We had some pretty pretty forthright goals. One was get trucks off the road, water trucks off the road, and two, wean the oil and gas industry itself, the operators, off of the use of fresh water. We had just come out of a drought from 2010 to 2015. Midland, Texas is an arid place to begin with, but compound that with a serious drought. And you have a situation where we wanted to be different from others and, and have that hyper-focus on non-potable water. Chris, maybe we can follow up on that concept a little bit and talk about just the scale. When we talk about we're trying to wean the industry off fresh water, when we talk about, you know, pipes are better than trucks. I mean, just for our average listener who may not understand exactly how the shell plays work and how fracking works, how much water are we talking about? You always hear the joke that the oil and gas business in West Texas really is, it has a product which is water, not oil. And so right. kind of explain, help our listeners understand the, the true scope and scale of the water that's involved going in and coming back out. Sure. So you, you, have, you have two sides of the equation, right? And you're trying to balance. You have, you have a supply side for completions, and then you have a takeaway side for produced water, right? And so the takeaway side... What's important to most of the operators is that that takeaway side, if you can't take that water away and get rid of it, you're going to choke oil production, right? Their, their batteries are going to have to slow down or shut down, which cuts off all the oil. Well, they spend millions of dollars developing oil wells. They want those things IPing and continuing to IP for a very, very long time, right? So they have to remove all that water out of the system, right? And they're currently disposing of it. Most people are disposing of it. On the supply side, when you look at the frack count today, right, there's about 210 frack fleets out there. Let's just assume they're all doing 10 stages a day per frack fleet, about 10,000 barrels a day or per stage, right? So you're, you're looking right there alone, you're looking at like 210 million barrels a day is moving in the Permian Basin just today. So the supply side is dramatic as well. And so what we looked at is, hey, let's combine the takeaway side all this produced water that's coming out of the ground, they're spending millions of dollars to get it out of the ground. Why go turn around and inject it into the ground right next door? Why not try to use it and give it back to that supply side that's 210 million barrels a day that they need to complete these wells? 
And so it was just a natural daisy chaining effect of, of how do you do water logistics? How do you move it from one spot to another? Because that's really what it turns into is you have to be there in time. When we showed up in 2013 in the Permian Basin, rigs were chasing water. So what I mean by that is it was very unsophisticated. There was farmers that were just putting their fresh water rather than farming cotton. They would put it into a pit. When the pit got full, oil company would come in and frack that one well, right? And, and put it on production. We can't do that anymore, okay? With the size of these pads, those the oil companies have figured out how to mass produce these drilling pads, right? They can turn around and drill, drill down five miles and drill out two miles and do that in 14 days and move to the next hole, which is phenomenal. So technology has caught up so much on the drilling and completion side that, that we're still trying to catch up from the water side. We're still trying to put that effort together and, and do it in an ESG way that it is sustainable, that it's environmental friendly. And that is keeping par and course with, with all the environmental regulations that we see on the drilling completion side. So I want to touch on a little bit on that, on that statement about sustainability. And you'd mentioned, John, how it's been so important to you all since you started. And in, in looking at it kind of the, in the current context of the excitement around ESG, I should say, in the last couple of years, it's, gotten, it's dominating everything like it is in this conference. But what was it a while, about, a while you know, six, seven years ago that made y'all realize this was going to be important now and going into the future when it wasn't quite as popular as it was today? Well, I'll tell you, and it's an, hopefully an interesting anecdote. I started out, my knowledge of XRI came as a customer. I was Chris's first long-term customer when I was with Pioneer Natural Resources. We were building a water infrastructure system ourselves, but part of that charge at Pioneer was to, and we announced it to the world, we're going to get off fresh water within five years. Well, XRI was there to help us get off of fresh water within five months. And, and that was, again, my initial interaction with Matt Gabriel, co-founder and CEO, and with Chris Harrich, COO, and their team. And I had always just marveled at how they had taken a plan, come into an industry that they really did not have a background in, but absolutely sensed very early on what a sustainable focus for the industry could be, what a logical focus could be with Chris's background based on science. And then it's about customer service. It's about building those relationships. And then it's about from those relationships, you build infrastructure. It's putting that water in the ground, getting those trucks off the road, and then taking a lot of lessons learned from the conventional midstream space, which I personally spent a lot of time in, in my oil and gas career, and then applying a lot of those same principles to moving water to various operators. And, and again, what sets XRI apart from the very beginning from a lot of our peer companies is the fact that we're set up initially as a source distribution supply company moving non-potable water. And so with that came a unique set of assets and configuration of assets in that all of our assets throughout the Midland Delaware Basin are set up as water distribution utilities, if you will, underpinned by contracts from multiple operators who, again, helped, we helped keep them in business. They helped put us in business by building those trusting relationships. We build infrastructure that now we've taken to the next level with the even higher focus on ESG initiatives at those companies as well as our own. 
the recycle and reuse of raw produced water and continuing to move that water, not only back to that operator who gives us that raw water that we treat and send back to them, now we've got a collection of operators on each of our systems who almost compete for that produced water, which again is driven by those ESG initiatives. Well, so let's maybe take a step back and almost go water management 101, what I'll kind of call the Lion King circle of life discussion we've had <laughs> so far, which is, is amazing to me. But maybe Chris, expand for us. Tell us for somebody who doesn't really understand how we're pulling water out and treating it and putting it back in, kind of walk through the infrastructure, walk through the technology. What does it look like? You know, how many wells are you servicing in a, good, in a particular time? You know, just kind of the whole nuts and bolts of how the thing works and a kind of a basic level so people can wrap their head around the scale and, and just intensity of what you guys are doing on a daily basis. Right. And so I think, I think John hit on it. You need to think of our water infrastructure as a kind of a public utility. So I live here in the Frisco area. There's big main trunk lines out through all of these developments, right? There's fire hydrants. When you go open up a fire hydrant, you get 600 gallons a minute out of that fire hydrant. You can go to the other side of the development, open up the same fire hydrant that's in the same trunk line and also get 600 gallons a minute out of it, right? So the pipeline in the ground is big, right? To be able to move that much volume of water in it. We realized early on, specifically in the Permian, the water might not be at the location that this company or that company needs, that you have to distribute it. You got to have pipelines, just like these housing developments, that, that you can build a new housing development because there's a big pipeline out in the street. Right, And I can go put in 300 houses or 300 well pads because I have a big pipeline in the street. And so early on in 2013, we started building pipeline. We started building water pipeline and putting it in the ground and burying it. So we woke up to today and we have over 400 miles of large diameter buried pipeline in both the Midland Basin and the Delaware Basin, servicing multiple operators. We were capitally responsible to our investors and you know we had to have underpinned relationships and contracts on that to be able to get access to that capital and returns models and all of those things. But then it just kind of grew. So when we were using brackish groundwater that was very deep, nobody else could use because it was too salty to drink. It was too salty to farm with. It was kind of this underlying aquifer that nobody tapped into called the Santa Rosa. It's all over the Midland Basin, right? And so Matt and I came out of kind of the world of defense, believe it or not. We were a technology-driven company, building technology for mapping defense-related subjects. And so we had things that we flew under helicopters and things that we tamped on the ground to, to image the earth, like a seismic survey, okay? And so we found the best places to drill the water. So just like the oil, it's not all in the one spot, right? There's, there's different tiers of oil, like you know, in, in certain areas, the spray berries better than other areas, right? We found the same with water. So we built the water facilities in those locations and then distributed it out with big pipeline. And then we always had in mind, hey, let's make sure we have a client that underpins the cost of this pipeline. And then we'll, we'll sick the BD dogs on them and they will go land more projects. And those projects will keep building from each other and paying back. Today, when we wake up, we realize that we can use those pipelines, but now let's fill them full of recycled produced water. And let's start dwindling down our, our any of the groundwater usage that we use from an economic reason. It's the right thing to do from an ESG position. And so when we think about water use, we're trying to be water positive. 
Okay, net water positives. There's there's the net zero carbon initiative, right? And yeah. and this is where you were talking about the E, the S, and the G pre previous in the, the conference. Right. We're trying to be water positive. So we're not thinking about emissions. We're thinking about actually putting more water into the environment that the people of Midland could use, the people of Odessa could use, than we take out. And so the problem right now with, with the, the way the system is built and just kind of completions throughout the United States is, is you go to other places, whether it's the Bakken, whether it's the Marcellus, sometimes they're taking water out of a river, right? So this could be used downstream for drinking. They're taking it, fracking a well. When that water comes back, they inject it into the ground. And so they've taken water that was in this hydrologic cycle, your, your circle of life, which is the hydrologic cycle, and they're taking it completely out of the hydrologic cycle forever. Okay, we're putting it down at the Precambrian rock. Okay, it is gone. So any fresh water we took out of that stream disappeared. You're never getting it back. Okay. So we don't believe in that. We believe like, hey, let's use this produced water that's, that's new water to the hydrologic cycle. It's never been there before because it's coming from the oil and gas reservoir, right? You're bringing it up. That is new water. It wasn't in the snowpack. It wasn't in the rainfall. Okay, this stuff existed back in the, in the Permian age. Right. And, and so let's reuse it. Let's recycle it. Let's keep reusing it and recycling it. And at the very end, we have disposal wells that as the play dies or as the play moves on to different locations, you're going to ultimately have to find a place for it, which is disposal today. Right. Technology hasn't caught up. Cost hasn't caught up. Once those things catch up, hopefully we'll be able to eliminate disposal altogether. Now, I own a bunch of disposal wells, so I, I don't like that idea, but I think it's still the, the valuable thing to do. Other places are able to recycle that water and put it back into the surface environment, into a river stream or an aquifer, right? Unfortunately, in the Permian, our water so, has such high chloride, such high TDS, we'll, it's, it's going to be cost prohibitive to do that in the near term, right? So. But I would also add to what Chris said, that incremental water that's coming up with the hydrocarbons, that's why I love the term water positive, because, again, I think that's a term that people can understand that what we're trying to do, and Chris mentioned the disposal wells, we don't own as many disposal wells as a lot of people do, but I think universally and certainly within XRI, we believe that disposal should be really the last resort for where this where the water should go which is why our emphasis is so much on reuse and recycle and i do believe it's not here today but the technology is being worked on now for beneficial use of produced water down the road for other other industries outside of energy and i think that's an important focus that we as a company and we as an industry have to maintain a lot of thought on it i'm a member of the doe Produced Water Task Force have been for about a year and a half. And even with the change in administration, that Produced Water Task Force is still very focused on working with midstream companies in the water space like ourselves and in, in coming up with technologies to redeploy produced water rather than it go into the ground via disposal. I'm really, really intrigued with what you said, Chris, because we were talking earlier about how do we get some love, if you will. You know, everybody, emissions got to decarbonize, carbon's the enemy. And we were in our conversation, we're like, well, where's water's proponent? Where's the positive on that? Because even if it's just purely environmental or back to circle of life, 
I would imagine people that really care about the air probably care about water as well, right? Absolutely. But you said that it was a fine, so there's a finite amount of water that we use in the current cycle, if you will. But this water that you're talking about pulling out that creates this positive impact is so is so far down that you're actually introducing a, a net gain to that amount of water being used in that cyclical system. But if you pull it from that fresh water, and then when it goes through that process, it ends up getting put back in and you actually deplete it. So can you help us, we say the word water, like I think rainwater, I think some kind of tap, or even maybe like some dirty creek water, but you're talking about stuff that is really, really different. Can you tell us a little bit about what the water is like that you pull out of the out of the ground and then a little bit maybe about the water that you're using for those operations and how those are different than what we think of as water? So when you do a completion, right, on an oil and gas well, you have, you have two types of water that come back. You have the initial flow back water that was the water that, all the service providers are putting chemistry, putting sand into injecting and actually hydraulically fracturing the rock. It flows back, right? So if you're putting, say, a half a million to three quarters of a million barrels downhole for a completion effort, that water is going to come back to the surface. About Depending on where you're at, you might have 20% loss, you might have 30% loss, okay, on a half a million barrel frack. That's the first water that you get back within, say, the first 14 days, Okay. And then the water starts to switch over to what we call produced water. That's formation-driven water, okay? And so that was the water that was deposited when the hydrocarbons were actually going through methogenesis or thermogenesis, rather, where they were actually turning into hydrocarbons. One of the byproducts is water, okay? And so, for instance, in the Permian Basin, again, I'm going to stay Permian-centric because I love Midland and that's where I'm from. And, you know, the Delaware Basin is anywhere from a four to seven or eight water cut. So there's eight or four to eight barrels of water for every one barrel of oil coming back to the surface. Midland Basin is a little bit less, right? It's about a three to one cut. So you're generating this and that's over the long period time of the well, right? And so even 10 years from now, these horizontals will still be generating water. And you might get 30, 30 barrels a day, right? For every 10 barrels of oil you get out in the Midland Basin, but you still have to do something with it. Okay. So that's these long-term tails that you see people put slides up on the production curves. And so what we're trying to do is eliminate. So for instance, this year we will, we will have used completion water, the volume of completion water that we're going to use that's recycled will save the city of Midland's water from being used for a frack. Okay. And I think that's part of the if you want to call it the S or the G, I don't know where it fits in yet, but I think it's the S, okay? It's definitely community. It's definitely S. I think it's yes. definitely S is where it fits in. I think this is where we do a bad job of celebrating that, right? Maybe as water guys, we need to do a better job of getting the community involved in that. And that's where we're being net positive, water positive. So so the city of Midland, when they're pumping their aquifers and they're going through a drought, they get you know 100% of their water comes from the ground, Right we're not competing with that water resource, right? And that's a, that's a huge involvement that we need to get the, the community more behind and more operators behind, right? So it's worth spending a little more to save the city of Midland, the city of Odessa, their community's water supply, okay? Because the one thing that never changes is the price of water that you pay at your house, right? I've been on that side too as a public <laughs> water utility where you're never able to pass a bill that you could get a water increase because everybody screams, you know, that, hey, I just want to increase your water bill a little bit. No, not my water bill. And the oil and gas side, you know, to develop these resources, we need to take advantage of that. And we have technology. We have some of the best people, the smartest people, the best technology that we use every single day. 
we need to do a better job of figuring out the S and G part because we do the E pretty well. I think we truly do. But the S and G part, we just need to figure out how to vocalize that a little bit better. There definitely needs to be some storytelling improvements for sure. Maybe go on a podcast or something. I don't know. I do love the term water positive. It seems like every yeah. time we do an episode, I get a new phrase that I can I can grab onto and use. And I love that. And this idea, I don't think many people realize that, is, hey, we're going to take this water back and we're going to inject it deep in the ground. That water's out of circulation. It's almost like taking dollar bills and burning them. Like, no, those, those are out of, although we probably need to take some dollar bills out of circulation at this point. <laughs> but I want to go back to maybe what I'll just call the gathering side. And that, and that may be an imprecise way of describing it, but we've got these millions and millions of barrels. You guys are trying to grab them as they come up out of the ground, whether it be the initial backflow or, or it's, it's the formation water that's coming up. How are you guys doing that, especially for a well that's been there for 10 years? Is this, are there still trucks involved? Do you actually have gather, true gathering systems, almost like oil and natural gas would do, that are, that are pulling things back to y'all's facilities? To, how does all of that work when we think about that scale? We do. And Chris alluded to it earlier when he talked about the large major trunk lines that we've built throughout the Midland and Delaware Basin. Well, what we are now discovering, especially as, as people get to know what our focus is on the reuse and recycle side of things, we're doing bolt-on projects where we're, we're building pipeline off of our existing large mainline pipelines and going in and grabbing additional water that way, gathering additional water. And that can be with an existing customer who's grown an acreage position or new customers who are obviously in the neighborhood and want to do more with their water than send it back underground. But what we're doing is we're on the pre-frac side as well as the post-frac side, which I think is something that I think is really exciting. The pre-frac side, of course, is the original supply water. Before it was non-potable. Now, largely, it's this treated produced water. Again, that's being driven by our own desires, but mainly by desires of our operators. And then on the post-frac side, that's where we're doing the treatment, the recycle, redistributing water to these customers off of existing as well as bolted on new systems. So one of the things that Sean and I always like to do is talk about ROI. We like to talk about the economics. We're passionate believers that you can be altruistic, you can do great things on the ESG front, but you can still make a good living doing it. And it's got to make sense to your customers and it's got to make sense to you. So we've heard a little bit today, I think in the conference, a pretty repeated theme, which is, hey, every basin is different. Economics are different. The regulations are different. You know, New Mexico versus Texas is drastically different when you cross that line, just about what you can and can't do. So I wanted to get y'all's thoughts on economics. What hurdles from an economics or regulatory standpoint are in front of the recycle reuse business? I mean, it, it seems like a home run all day long, but what are some of those bumps in the road that you, you guys are running into, whether it's in the Permian, whether it's in the other basins or whatnot? Just your sure. thoughts on that. So... We are getting to the point by using technology, accessing more. I don't want to go to complete AI yet, but we're, we're really focused heavy on technology. That has enabled us to get our recycling costs down in line with our lifting costs out of water wells. So we're not there yet, but I, but I am very close. So all your listeners are probably going to want, yeah, what's the price per barrel? <laughs> uh, and I can tell you that, that we're hovering just my cost. This is not a return on my investment. Okay. Just my daily operational costs. I'm getting below 10 cents a barrel right now for my daily ops cost. So you can do the ROI or the IRR from there. Our ROIs, our IRRs are staying in the 
you know, 18 month return on investment range, depending on the size and scope of the project. And then we like to see, you know, 40% margins on an IRR standpoint. And that's to build a system. So we have very disciplined private equity group that these are the metrics I have to hit to give funding, period. We don't do any blue sky. And that's probably what's helped us survive. But again, we just concentrate on what we do really well, which is getting water from point A to point B. And like, we weren't smart, right? We saw Jeff Bezos do this, right? What did Amazon do really well? They got stuff to your door like within 24 hours. And we just said, hey, let's redo that, right? With pipelines rather than trucks, obviously. And that's kind of what we focused on. Let's let's really find large keystone customers that, that were interested in a long-term solution for water. And then let's go campaign the heck out of it along the way to drive our returns up for the customers in between. And then where we find ourselves today is really just being kind of Switzerland. You asked about the gathering system. Hey, go in and partner with these large EMPs, these public companies and say, hey, let us use your system. Let us borrow your system, your infrastructure, because you guys paid a lot of money for it. We want to use it, take your produced water and give it to this guy down line. And then guess what? When he's done completing his 12 well pad, I'll have a bunch more produced water to take back. I'll recycle it and give it back to you and we'll drive everybody's price down by doing that. And so that's kind of this water exchange philosophy, this water exchange terminal that we've actually coined is use our pipeline as trunk lines to wheel water back and forth to people, right? It's just become a hub. It's just become a hub. Right. Okay. But the more customers you have on it, then you can start turning it into a water exchange terminal. And then hopefully one day you saw some of the EMPs talk today about, well, we never know the price. It's always ambiguous. Well, hopefully one day we'll be able to publish the price. And actually take that into the public domain so you know your water price because it's traded like a commodity through a water exchange terminal. So you can say, hey, I need water here on this terminal, this hub. This is now the price of it. And they can plan their day around it. So it's not so volatile. It's not up in there. That, that's our big vision. I probably shared some secrets there. I might get a call after this podcast. <laughs> the, the secret sauce is out. The secret sauce is out. Right. Well, but if you think about Henry Hub and you think about being able to go and say, okay, I can see a price That's right. at that point. If a upstream producer can get more comfortable with partnering because they have visibility into pricing and can go on a daily basis and say, okay, I know, I know what my water is going to cost me. That's a win-win, I would think, no matter yeah. how much we talk about the secret sauce. But I, I do think right. that's a win-win in that front. Yeah. No, they just talked about the pricing metrics being such a big concern. Well, that's... You commoditize it, everybody knows kind of what that price point is going to be, and you can plan accordingly. And that was the thing, you know, because we came out of the government DOD space, we had to share our prices, it had to be open source. (laughs) So everybody knew our business. And so we we weren't scared to share that with operators. It was really like, you know, here it is, this is what it actually costs. If that's too expensive, then you can't have as much water that you want because my pipe needs to be bigger. Okay. If you want less water, I can make my pipe smaller and I can make the cost come down. And so just really being transparent with your customer and your client. And that's what I did with John in the very beginning was when he was a pioneer was like, Hey, I can have it online this date. It's costing me this much. Therefore it's going to cost you this much. And we were able to come to terms and do a deal. Right. And I think that transparency is what people crave and appreciate, especially in the world that we're in today. I think not coming from the oil and gas space, I was always amazed at how secretive everybody was, man. It was like, 
holy cow, I thought I was black ops, you know, the government, but like these oil guys, it was like, you couldn't even bring stuff into the buildings. I remember John had like a Faraday cage in part of his building <laughs> at the pioneer office here in Las Colinas. Right. Because we were always worried about that kind of theft. And so for me, that was kind of weird. It was a weird experience coming in, you know, and then all the NDAs and CAs that I had to sign was like, holy cow, I got to keep a person on staff. I'll just, just tell you that. these numbers, guys. Yeah, right. I have to keep a person on staff just to figure those out. You got to get, get a lawyer on your staff. That's uh, the- uh, lawyers. You know, and it's not just about transparency with your customers, which of course leads to a better long-term relationship when you, when you, uh, under promise and over deliver and when you do what you're supposed to do because quite frankly if if we were ever late with water on a frack that may be the last job we ever do with that right. with that customer and that's why when i was sitting in that operator chair reliability was close to number 1 kind of co number 1 also was safety and that's something that we as a company are extremely proud of we, we are currently on long term winning streak there This is the 464th day in a row, and yes, I do memorize these numbers, (laughs) of uh, without an OSHA reportable incident or spill, and that equates right now to about three-quarter of a million man-hours. And you heard on one of the first panels today, Major, one of our customers, say, talk about the importance of safety. That was the first word out of his mouth was safety, and that's something, again, that cannot be overstated from our business because one, those things are verifiable by the operators anyway. If you don't have the right kind of safety record, which by the way, our total recordable incident rate right now because of that streak we're on is 0.00, which it doesn't get better than that. Gold star for you guys. Congratulations. It's really, you know, it's something that under both Chris and my leadership because we, we had the safety we've had the safety groups under us over the over that period and it's been really a phenomenal you know really culture that we've created you've got to have that create that culture of safety or again no matter how long term those relationships are you can't disappoint in that regard well I think it speaks volumes that you have that that memorized I mean to somebody on the outside looking in that's, that's the kind of if that's important to you you're going to remember that kind of stuff so I think it, it plays what you're saying it's one of those things we talked about Everybody wants to hear these stories and they want to hear this example. And this is this has been a great example of what we think is a, why we do this, why we do this case study format. Yeah. No, it was awesome. Thank you all so much for joining us yeah. today and, and telling us a little bit about what's going on in XRI and water's part of the future and we got to figure it out. And you, you guys are leading in that front. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Sean, Eric, thank you both. You're yeah, welcome. Thank Thanks, you. guys. All right. And with that, we will see you all next week. Thanks for listening. And that's it. <laughs> Hey everybody, it's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for June 2021. This month we have six events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events that I talk about here. We even include events that occurred two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting two events. One is online and one is in person. For our online event, we're hosting a live stream titled Deal Value Creation, M&A, and ONG. This is going to be on June the 2nd. And for our in-person event, we're relaunching our happy hours. It's been far too long since we had a good happy hour, so I'm sure plenty of you will be excited to hear that our next happy hour will be at the Canon in Houston, Texas on June 24th. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. We hope to see you there. 
Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events, which are the Energy Capital Conference on June 2nd at the Omni Houston Hotel and the U.S. Police and Fire Championships from June 10th to the 21st. The Police and Fire Championships will be hosted in multiple locations, so make sure to check out our events newsletter for more information about that. Next, we have our two online events, the first being the Post-Industrial Summit Series. This event actually started on May 4th, but it'll be ending later this month on June 22nd, so there's still plenty to see. And our second online event is the Big Data Industry Summit from June 9th to 10th. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for June. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it, ask them to listen, and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, we want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. Ha!